Morning, everybody. I've got more loot than usual today, so I've got an orange. What do you think this is for? You don't even know. And I've also got one of these kid medicine syringes. What do you think this is for? It's a mystery. Maybe you'll find out. I've also got a clicker, and that's for moving slides around, so no mystery there. Well, it's great to see everybody. Um, crazy days. Only two kids in kids' ministry. I guess it's the mask mandate slash time change really just torpedoed all the joy of the start of restart of children's ministry. Welcome to UnChristmas, kids. Anyhow... These are wonderful days for growing in the Lord and for not letting all your trust be on comfort and predictability. And um, I want to share a couple things from our week. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40. So as you have your Bibles with you, you can be there. We're going to be specifically looking at verses 15, 16, and 17, but I might jump around in this entire spot. So I'm going to share a little bit about my week and then... By God's grace, this may turn into a sermon series, but we'll see. So, you you can only take things six hours at a time these days. Am I right? Am I right? They literally changed the clocks on you in the middle of the night. That's how undependable reality is right now. And so, you have to, it's only Jesus, the only rock is Jesus, and that's a good place to be anyways. So, a couple of things beyond all the stuff we've joked about that happened this week were this. Um, I was sitting with a brother who I'd never really had a conversation before with, but I was sitting with him this week, and he's part of a network of, of pastors and other church leaders across the country. So I was just kind of asking him what, what he's seeing going on, what he's sensing going on, what he's thinking going on. And one of the things he shared, which was really encouraging to me, is he said that the people that he connects with that have been really looking for opportunities during this whole time for the church have been doing really well. And they've been reaching out and gathering people in. And he says that his evangelist contacts have been saying, this is probably the time where the church has grown the most that we know of. Where just people are checking out Zoom meetings, people are checking out Zoom church, people are hungry, they're destabilized, they're looking for something. And because we felt really energized by that, because that has been my faith for this time, that because we live in a world that God is in control of, and because his mission is to spread the church throughout the entire world, and he doesn't press pause on those things for pandemics, in fact, it's more likely that he uses pandemics to accomplish these goals, I've been waiting to hear somebody tell me, yeah, the church has been really growing through this time. But, because, you know, because of life, you can't see it a lot of the time. And so I was really encouraged by that. And the other thing I was just really provoked about is that, you know, every time the government, well, every week, every time something happens in the States or every time the government changed the rules, we as church leaders kind of deal with another wave of, ah, it's the end of the world or something big is going on or the government's taking over the place or something like that. And I started to feel cheesed. 
Okay, so this is the part, you know, I, where I, it's like the honesty part here. I started to feel really provoked in my spirit because of this. I started to think to myself, well, of course the unbelievers are taking over the world. They actually want to do it. Of course the commies are taking over the United States. They actually want to be in control of the United States. They actually think what they believe in is important enough to take over the world with. Of course China is taking over the world. They think they're worthy of it. They think they deserve it. Of course they're trying to take over everything. Of course all these people are taking over the world. They actually think that what they believe in is important enough to do that. And it just provoked me because it's like, actually we're the ones who should be taking over the world. And hungry to do that. But we're not as hungry as other people are. Thus, the world we live in. And so, I believe that God is actually doing a real reset. People are afraid of the great reset. Where the socialists are taking over everything and wanting to bring around a one world government and all this stuff and control all the property and control everything and the vaccine and all that stuff. No, 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 no. These days are for a reset, but they're for a reset for the church. That we would get back to doing what we are always supposed to be doing, which is being hungry to see our God in control of the entire world as he truly is. And to see people who don't see Christ as he deserves to be seen, as Lord and Savior, that we would be hungry to see that happen. Because that's the mission. The planet infiltrated in every place, in every people group, in every language, by the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as expressed by true faith in the risen Lord Jesus. That's the mission. That's the goal. And of course, Satan's got his own plans for world domination that he's going to try to imitate the Lord on. But God is spreading his kingdom through the entire planet, but we've really lost sight of that as the mission of the church and the mission of our lives and the reason we exist and the reason we breathe and the reason we're not in heaven yet is the spread of the gospel across the entire planet. Amen? So I think we are in the midst of a reset. But it's the good one. The one where God shakes things so that his plan becomes the center afresh again. Now, we're going to read Isaiah because... In the book of Isaiah, God took his people through a profound reset. And the story of Isaiah is that Isaiah was preaching before it happened, but he began preaching about the day when God was going to destroy Jerusalem through the Babylonians. Because their whole life and their whole worship had become so corrupt that God could not endure it anymore. Even though that was the center of God's people and the center of the world. His, the temple was in Jerusalem. The ark was in the temple in Jerusalem. It was the center of his presence and his purpose and his name was on that place. He said, no, th- this is so corrupt. I'm going to destroy everything with the Babylonian empire. And we're going to have a hard reset of what my people are doing in the world. 
And starting in about chapter 40, God starts to preach faith to these people who have gone through this reset. And he starts trying to teach them lessons which will create the people that they were always meant to be. A people completely obsessed with the greatness of their God. And wanting to see his glory spread throughout the entire planet. And full of disgust and hatred for the idols that they used to worship. And more purified and powerful than ever before. So starting in chapter 40, God begins to teach them things. And the thing we're going to look at today is the greatness of God compared to all things. And so here's our verse for today. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 15 through 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. So Lebanon was a major power in those days. He said you couldn't burn up enough of Lebanon to start a fire for the Lord. Nor is its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Real reset number one for the church. There is nothing worth anything compared to your God. Real reset lesson number one. There is nothing worth anything compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Isaiah uses a few metaphors, and we'll pull out object lesson number one. Here's my water dropper, my eye dropper, medicine dropper, and it does have a little bit of water in here. And if you're, you know, because of the movies, every time you have to do this, get the bubbles out. I think I'm putting more bubbles in. But I'm about to show you all of the nations in the world compared to God. Okay, are you ready? It's not a magic trick, but I'm about to show you how big and impressive all the nations of the world are compared to the risen Lord Jesus. Are you ready for it? Okay, did you catch it? Okay, maybe you had your eyes closed. We're gonna, maybe you blinked. We're going to try one more time. Living next to... The world's greatest superpower that's ever lived, the United States, living in a G8 country with friends from other countries that are also important countries that have the largest population in the world that's ever existed. I'm about to show you the worth and glory and grandeur and power and influence and impressiveness of all of the nations compared to the Father God, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and the poured out Holy Spirit. Are you ready for it? Okay, did you catch it? That's what Isaiah is saying. Because he's going right for the heart of the problem of God's people. They are so easily impressed by the things that God has made. Instead of God himself. And so powerfully controlled by the glory of men compared to the glory of the God who made all things. And so he says, they're just like a drop from a bucket. This isn't even a bucket. This is like the drop is quite a lot of the water in here compared to the water inside of a bucket. 
He says they're like dust. You go to a scale. It's like all those old school weighing scales that go like this. Remember Lady Justice holds up a scale in her hands to say what side to side. And it's like compared to God. you got God on one side of the scale. Everything he's made is like you go like this. And you got a little bit of gray on your finger. That's it. And then the coastlands. So the coastlands would be the most distant nations you can think about back in the Old Testament times. They're like fine dust. They're like that dust where you go, and then maybe you see a speck in this. When you're inside, and it's sunny outside, and the sun's coming through the window or something, and you see that sun beaming, and then you see just a little piece of something float by it for a second. That's That's all the coastlands. And then he talks about Lebanon, that great nation. He said, you know, if you were going to make an offering for the Lord and you decided to burn all that nation, it wouldn't even create a fire big enough to begin to start the worship worthiness of the Lord. And you take all their animals and all their beasts, both all the things that they've got penned up and everything running wild, and you just slaughter it all before the Lord. It's not even worthy enough for him to get out of bed to receive. And then he says again, all of the nations are as nothing before him. If you were to measure them, you put up an account for them. They're less than nothing. They're ne- you're into the negatives of worth and emptiness. They're like the air inside of a used milk carton jug. That's an amazing statement to make, isn't it? And you might think it's rude. And you might think it's unloving and unneighborly. You might think it's arrogant. The problem with those emotional responses, because then you might make it personal, right? Like, not my parents, (laughs) not my family, not my kids, not my car, not my stuff, not my life, not my job, not my hopes, not my dreams. Those can't be less than nothing compared to God. Right? You could get defensive. The problem is that this is true. And... The other problem is that this is comforting. Chapter 40 starts off after God's great devastation and the hard reset on his nation by commanding Isaiah to say this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God, and speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. This is meant to comfort a scared and beaten and battered and bruised and faith-wounded people. And Isaiah comes to them and he says, I'm here to comfort you. And the first thing you need to know is that nothing that you see is worth anything compared to the God who is your God. And if you want to get strong again, and if you want to be really comforted, and if you want to be truly healed, and if you want to be truly set free, let's start by learning how huge and great and awesome is the God who's going to come to heal you and set you free and raise you up and strengthen you. None of the words of our worship songs are worth that much if we think that Jesus is so small he can fit in your pocket. 
He loves me. He loves me. Give me little spooches. Put them in my pocket. No, if the God who loves you is the God worthy of everything and worth more than anything, then that is real love. And if the power we sing about isn't just like, I'm turning on a light switch, I'm turning up a light switch, power, power, power. Or, I got myself a paycheck from the government, $2,000, free money, power, power, power. If that's all God can do, then who cares what he says? But if he's more powerful and more worthy and more glorious and more honorable than everything put together, then what he says is so important and that he loves us is so amazing. And then his mission is so doable. Amen? So this is why these these verses, though they can be frightening and insulting, are so important. And so important even for missions. All the groups I talked about earlier who are trying to take over the world, even if they got all their wishes, they would find out that it's empty and useless and they're still broken and they're still unsatisfied and they haven't been healed and they're still angry and they're not saved. That's the thing, world. World. Just, I'll tell you the future. All the stuff besides Jesus will eventually let you down, and you'll still be broken, and your body will still fall apart, and you're still dying. Only this God, who is worth more than everything, is worth your life. Everything else is a wasted life. If you're spending your days on anything besides what's most important, it's a wasted life. And it will let you down and break your heart and leave you angry. And so we have to know this. We have to know. We have to know the supremacy of Christ. We have to know the greatness of God. We have to know his awesome power. We have to know him as he truly is. This is the beginning of the real reset for the church. And a real reset for the life that the God we're dealing with is so much more important than everything in the best possible way. For our hope and for our glory. Why don't I read more of this passage? We'll put it in some context here. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And who has marked off the heavens with a span? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed out the mountains in a scale and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord that man can show him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, which is a big word for us, and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket and are counted as dust in the scales. He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. The Lebanon, excuse me, would not suffice for fuel, nor 
are its beasts enough for a burnt offering? All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it with silver chains? He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot, and he seeks out a skillful craftsman to make up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like the grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. He's so big. Now let's solve a problem right away. The problem of of knowing that there are important things around us, like people and food and the stuff we need that we enjoy. Okay? And one of the things when you start talking about how nothing is worth anything compared to God is you can start feeling like, so I'm supposed to treat everything like junk for God's sake. Or I can't enjoy anything anymore. Or I need to become a jerk and assault people. Not necessarily. But this is how you do it. So I've got my orange. Does anybody like oranges? They're pretty cool. They're one of the best colors. Right? This is a nice color. And they look sweet. They come with their own suit of armor. That protects all those little segments inside there, but you can peel it open, and when you peel it open, it releases all that citrusy, juicy goodness into the air, and now you begin to anticipate the eating of an orange because it smells so good, and then it's like, on the inside, it's segmented so that you can get one bite of orange every time you just pull off one of these self-contained segments of juices. It like comes in its own juice carton. Like a few of them. It's got like an outside carton so you can buy it in bulk like at Costco. But then it's got these inside cartons so that you can get just one mouthful of juice every time you want one. That's pretty cool. Right? And it's got vitamin C for people like us who live in the north and we don't actually have a lot of fresh fruit all the time. And you get the threat of scurvy all the time. And you can have one of these oranges that gives you vitamin C so your body can work. So it smells good and it looks good and it tastes good and it fits in your hand. And you can throw it at people. There are tons of wonderful things about an orange. But an orange doesn't make itself. It comes from a tree. And the orange tree has dedicated its whole life to spreading out branches and capturing as much sun as possible. That's what it does, right? It puts out these big green leaves. Leaves. And it spends as much as time as possible catching the rays of the sun, which it eats, essentially, and uses, along with water and some minerals, to make its own energy so that it can transform that stuff into yummy goodness like an orange. But the orange knows and the tree knows that without that sun, this doesn't happen. Now, if I'm going to take my orange and say, man, I love oranges, and I'm going to find the sun. We've got some good skylights here, but I can't see the sun yet. But if I was going to hold up my orange to the sun and say, wow, my orange is about as big as the sun is. 
You know, you do that thing, some forced perspective. You get it like, just like the right thing. Wow, my orange is just about as big as the sun is. And then I could even go, oh, just move it over a little bit. Wow, my orange has blocked out the sun. This is a mighty orange. And then you go like this. Wow, my orange is bigger than the sun. It's a lot bigger than the sun. Wow. This orange must be amazing because it's all I can see. Right? That's how idolatry works. That's what idolatry is, biblically. Anything God has made that you hold up and you say, this is as big as God. No, this replaces God. No, this is better than God. It's all I can see. And so what we do is we take the orange out of our eye and we say, look at that amazing sun. So big it holds this entire planet in a permanent orbit around us, for, around it, forcing us to go through the seasons. It's so hot that even though the sunlight takes literally eight minutes traveling at the speed of light, which is as fast as anything can go, it takes eight minutes to get here. It's still so hot that if I go out on the beach in summertime, that thing will kill me. Unless I put on some sunscreen and drink a lot of water and get some shade every once in a while. That sun can kill me dead. You'd have to do a lot to get an orange to kill you dead. So it's about keeping the sun, the true knowledge of the sun in its place and not replacing it with something else. But the whole human heart always wants to do this. Take something that God has made and hold it next to him and then hold it in front of him and then make it way bigger than him. And that's what gets us wrecked. That's what gets us crushed. That's what throws us off. That's what robs our joy. That's what makes church boring and a drag, and a nuisance, and, a, and a, a chore. You forget that this, with whatever it is, masks, no masks, is about the greatest being who will ever live, who's so wise that he controls all things with wisdom, so strong that he made and upholds all things, he's so good that he's filled this universe full of glory and amazing things and joy and pleasures, and he's so holy that he upholds his justice and is like no one else, and he's so kind that he saves people, he's so good that he's beyond imagination, yet he's so near that we can totally know him and worship him, and if you forget that this God is the whole point. This becomes lame. And the mission of God, which is the spread of the truth of Jesus around the world, becomes a real drag. Why would you spend your time and money and energy helping local missions or worldwide missions or in-home missions when there's so many more fun and entertaining and satisfying things besides God? And the problem is that we've stopped beholding the Lord. I like this word, behold. It's totally a church word. Church words are great. Sometimes people come in here, your church, church is full of church words. Yeah, get jealous. Don't you wish you knew church words? Man, we, we adopt new words all the time. Any, everybody's like... Out of the States, people making up slang all the time, and we adopt it all the time. We love new words. What's wrong with picking up some church words? 
What's wrong? Come on, you tell me. Why can't you pick up some church words? This is a church word, behold. Nobody uses this word behold all the time, walking around. Behold, I'd like to pay my bill at the restaurant. You know, nobody uses this thing. Behold, can I fill it up with premium gas? You know, we don't talk like that. Behold, honey, I'm home. What's for dinner? Slap, slap. You know, you don't even talk. We don't talk with behold anymore. But it's a great church word. It means, look at this. And usually when we're talking about this, it's like, look at God. And you're going to have to make the effort. And it's not because God isn't showing himself in amazing ways everywhere all the time. He totally is. But we're so used to not catching it. We're so used to being blind. We're so used to going to Mexico in the summer for for a vacation and just walking out there and being like, I'm just going to play video games in the arcade. And you're just like, there's an amazing ocean out there full of stingrays that want to kill you. Go out there and enjoy it. High score Tetris. We're so used to choosing not glory. That we have to push ourselves. And pray for it. God, help me behold you. Help me see you. I wake up every day into your creation. And you're everywhere. And you're doing everything. And you're better than everything. And I don't catch it. Open my eyes. Open my heart. Help me to catch this. I want to behold Jesus as he really is. I want to behold the truth as it really is. I don't want to go around discouraged. I don't want to go around deflated. I don't want to think you're not better than everything. That's a living hell. The whole point of hell is that you didn't ever catch the glory of God in the world. You didn't see it, and you didn't love it, and you didn't treasure it, and you thought Jesus was not as cool as the latest MVP sports guy, or the latest video game coming out, or the latest powder that's been pressed into a pill, or whatever it is. Or the latest political move, or the latest handout, or the latest person who's interested in you, or whatever it is. We can't meet anything that's better than God. And everything all together is just the beginning of the revelation of how amazing he is. And the whole point of heaven is that it takes an eternity for somebody to appreciate all the glory of God. And if there's any fear in heaven, it would be this, that you wake up and go after the first 100 million years, you go, maybe someday I won't get to wake up into God. That would be the only fear that someday you might, might not be able to see him again. Because he's the best. With never ending, always increasing, always in forever bestness. All the journey of seeing and savoring this, the supremacy of Jesus. All the, 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 the trials and the pains of being set free from being obsessed with things that are so small compared to him. Oh, the glories of the freedom of getting it. These truths about God that have always been there. Of knowing the reality of God that have always been there but we've been blind to. It is so worth the rest of our lives. To make the daily mission of every single morning to see and savor Jesus. To behold him as he truly is. To grow in the knowledge of the glory of God. This, this is worth your life. 
And the only thing worthy of your life is to know him and to know him more and to know him better. And to, like that orange tree, just want to capture all the knowledge of God you can get so that you can be as fruitful as possible with the best oranges available. And that's where it comes from. It comes from knowing God. And this is so important to believe that God is better than everything because in one sense, it's the only thing that makes sense of our gospel. Our message to the world is this. We're broken and we're sinners and we choose things instead of God and we do things that are offensive to God and are criminal before God. And so we're under the judgment of God and we deserve to be rejected by God forever. And, And God has decided to rescue us. And so he sent his son to come and he died on the cross for our sins and he shed his blood so that everybody can be forgiven all things and be brought home to God. And that's the gospel, not just being forgiven, but being, being set free so you can have God again and all of God and all of God so you can have all of God. That's the point of forgiveness is to come home to God. And that's the point of salvation is to have God. God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. But wait. How does it make any sense that somebody dying, that some Jewish carpenter hanging on a piece of wood outside of Jerusalem would be able to bring salvation for the entire planet? How does that make sense? Unless that man was of more worth than the entire planet. If that man turned out to be God himself and the Lord Jesus Christ turned out to be worth more than all of the nations and before him all the nations are nothing and less than nothing in emptiness, then surely that's the only way his shed blood could be worth so much that all of our sins and all of everybody's sins could be forgiven by it. Have you thought of this before? How could all of us be completely forgiven by the shed blood of a man worth more than everything? And that's why we have confidence that we are truly and deeply forgiven. The man who suffered for us was God himself and his blood is worth everything. So that we can bring to him anything and be forgiven of it completely. That's our gospel. The worth of Christ. And that's our worship. The worth of Christ. All right. This is where things get really um, dicey in one sense. Because the move from saying, hey, you exist to see God and love it. Behold, you're God. To what can we do about that? So often is the change from I'm beginning to see the grace of God to oh, it's all about me and my performance. And I don't know if you've noticed, but this is like the death to churches all the time. The movement away from I cannot believe I get to come home to the glory of God and his unlimited love and his total compassion and his complete mercy and his abundant forgiveness. I can't believe I get to come and tell him how much I love him too. Oh, I got to do all this stuff. That movement really is a movement from heaven to hell. But it happens 
because, well, we need to change. Does anybody here not want to change? Anybody here want to change? Okay. So we want to change, and in the process of seeking change, we stop beholding. And it's so simple, but it's so deadly and so common. Amen? Then all of a sudden, this Christian life that you want to attain to becomes the next idol. Man, I just want to be free from this stuff. It'd be so nice to be free. Oh, I just want to be free from this stuff. I wish God would help me. Oh, this freedom that I wanted is so important, and I don't have it, and I don't have God. It's deadly. And so this is what I'm going to say today. Let's pray. This is a prayer thing where you keep asking the Lord, show me your glory. Like Moses. Do you remember Moses talking to the Lord? The things went so bad with Israel. God rescued them from Egypt, brought them out to the desert. Moses is up on the mountain. Israel turns into idolatry like days after God rescues them. Moses comes down. It's this big hubbub. People die. God's going to reject Israel. Moses is praying for their salvation. And, he, and he's still called to be their leader. And he, talk, he, he manages to talk God into not quitting. And then he says to God, God, if I found any favor in your eyes, I want to see your glory. Show me who you truly are. He says, I've got all this work to do for you. I don't want to do it unless I know you. You got all this mission for me to do and lead this people. I don't want to do it unless I see you. And God says, I'll show you, but I'm going to have to hide myself because I don't want to destroy you. But God, God has revealed himself. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5, I think it is. God has revealed himself to us through Jesus and the outpoured Holy Spirit way more than he showed himself to Moses back then, hiding him in the cleft of the rock. But that heart, that desire, which is the Christian heart and the healed heart and the healthy heart and the growing heart and the healing heart and the free heart still remains. God, show me your glory. Show me who you truly are. Amaze me with your works. Help me to see what you're doing. Keep my confidence in you alive. Show me who you are. Don't let me get distracted. Don't let me be an idolater. In the midst of my busyness, encourage me and strengthen me with the knowledge of your character and the knowledge of your plan and the knowledge of what you're like. Make me know you. Make me see your glory. I'm here to behold you. Even when I scrub the dishes, I want to behold you. Even when I change the diaper, I want to behold you. Even when the kids are throwing up again, help me behold you. Even during the pandemic, help me behold you. Even when the mask stuff is so weird, help me behold you. Help me see my God. Show me my God. This is all of our strength. This is all of our health. This is all of our growth. Show me the Lord, God. Father, if you love me, show me Jesus afresh. Holy Spirit, if you care, make me see Jesus again. If you love me, make me see Jesus. Help me see Jesus. I want to know Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. All my treasure is Jesus. All my freedom is Jesus. All my strength is Jesus. The reason to wake up in the morning is Jesus. The reason to wake up in the morning is to see Jesus. The reason to wake up in the morning is to see Jesus. Give us Jesus, God. Make us see Jesus, God, with all these distractions. Show us the Lord with all these pressures. Show us the Father. Make us see God, Holy Spirit. Make us see Him. Make us see Him and know Him and know Him as He truly is worth more than everything and worth more than anything and a joy to spend your life on. Make us see Jesus. 
Should we sing? Amen. So I'm going to pray. Father, I pray for a profound deliverance from the idolatry of church going and being a good Christian. Father, this whole life of maintaining our relationship with you by our performance is idolatry. And I pray, Lord, instead you would make us behold the unparalleled and infinite worth of our God. And you would cause us by your resurrection power to know and to press on to know the worth of the Lord Jesus so that for us we could truly say it is a joy to lose all things in order to know the Lord Jesus and to be conformed to his likeness even in suffering up to the point of death on the cross. Father, would you make our hearts sing with real truth like the psalmist said, because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Liberate us, O oh God, from all competition and all performance. Show us the glory of Jesus, God. This is what we were made for. Amen.